Welcome to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. A trigger warning for this episode, we're going to be talking very frankly about issues around depression. There are a couple of parts that might be a little bit heavy going if you've got children listening with you. I just love the mountains. You can't grow up in the lakes and not be into the mountains. My parents were fell walkers and I remember going fell walking when I was really tiny. And I just loved being in the hills and I'd always wanted to go winter climbing. And when I'd first started climbing, I'd wanted to be an alpinist. You know, I, I read like Joe Simpson books and I just wanted to be in Nepal and going up mountains. And that just never happened, but I'd always wanted to winter climb. Absolutely love winter climbing. I just, everything about it is a success. Even if you don't get up your route, I think getting in is a success. Like being able to navigate is a success. Coping with the cold is a success. It just, the whole day, it means so much. Um, and it's such, such a huge experience all the time with it. I'd love it if today's episode was about a really great day in the hills in winter. But unfortunately it's not. It's about that second thing. I think this is something that climbers are very often guilty of. I know that it's something that I've done, where we define whether we've had a good day by whether it was successful, and maybe we redefine the criteria of what successful is so that we can measure it as a good day. In the first essay of his new book, The Magician's Glass, Ed Douglas toys with the idea of risk and reward in climbing. He talks with Nick Colton, who, shortly after Alex McIntyre's death in the 1980s, wrote an essay outlining his own changing philosophy on climbing. His conclusion was that competition climbing offered a way for young people to find recognition without risking their lives. This passage resonated with me because today's episode is about the opposite. It's about a climber who stepped away from competition because it wasn't providing the validation they wanted. And instead they picked up a form of climbing that offered more risk. The theme all the way through the episode today is about what defines success. How do you recognise it? And will it make you happy? Um, I'd always been competitive, so I did a lot of running and netball and things like that. So. I first met Katie Forrester in 2014 when she was the after-dinner speaker at an event I attended. She was talking about something that she wrote a really good blog post about called I Had a Black Dog. Racehorses, Katie has suffered from depression since she was a teenager and at different points in her life it's affected her in really dramatic ways. I just wanted to compete. It was just something that was in me to do and then primarily sort of did bouldering and a little bit of leading and then uh, from there went into ice climbing competitions. Happiness is such a, a coverall term, isn't it? Happiness is a spectrum. And, her talk that evening was about um, how she'd tackled her metaphorical black dog with a real one, a five-month-old Labrador called Jade. Katie talked about how Jade had a positive influence on her life, with that unquestioning loyalty and enthusiasm you get from a dog. Katie told this story really well, but if you've ever dealt with depression yourself, or know someone who has, you'll be aware that it isn't something which responds to a quick fix. In today's episode, I talked to Katie about the different aspects of mental control in her life. 
whether that's making hard headpoints, being a competition climber, or more recently becoming a mother. It is the most horrific form of depression. Having had depression and then having had postnatal depression, postnatal depression is horrific. You can't explain how awful, like it started like two days after I'd given birth and, you know, my labour was pretty long and it was pretty hardcore and I'd not slept in probably like three days, like more than a few hours at a time. And so you just get these snatches of sleep and you sleep deprivation is used as a form of torture for a reason because of how just horrific it makes you feel and how twisted and how dissociated from reality. Like depression feels like a weight and it feels grey and you feel that this blackness all around you. But then having had all your hormones just wipe out your body it was like physical pain it was like pain in every single one of your nerves it it was just so rough just wanting to die every single day wanting to die and trying to parent a little person just and just obsessing about death um and one thing that postnatal depression like depression's always given me quite a lot of anger anyway i think because I'm I'm such a perfectionist and I want to do well and I feel like I'm failing by being depressed. Um, which even I'm saying it and I can hear like how stupid it sounds, how ridiculous it sounds, but I'd just be so angry with postnatal depression and I'd walk down the street and I, I'd want to just punch somebody walking towards me and I just had... You know, you wanted to like throw everything around your house and you just wanted to destroy your house and you just had this anger and you could feel it bubbling up out, out of you and it was just there all the time along with this overwhelming sadness and rage and everything else. And So you'll gather from that passage that Katie's most recent experience of depression has been postnatal depression after the birth of her daughter, Ada. But Katie's history with this goes back further. It's a bit of a nature-nurture thing where there's some things which are must be genetic. I must have a problem with dopamine in my system or serotonin in my system. So it's just uh, I have a predilection towards depression. My personality has been built up in a way and uh, my coping mechanisms are built up in a way that I kind of go into a dark place. That's the more natural way for me to go. So both of those things mean that I have these reoccurring spells of severe depression. Um, so on top of trying to compete and everything, I've also got my black dog, which is telling me that you just, I'm trying not to swear, but um, <laughs> I just get bleeped out. Um, just that... My idea of who I am as a person and uh, maybe isn't the same as reality. It's sort of like a lot lower. I was on the bouldering squad and then because of my teacher training, I never got to go. I was invited to go to America and never got to go because of my teacher training. And I had really enjoyed the process of doing the team training and everything and got in contact with Andy Turner, who was managing the ice climbing team. And he said, yep, come along, try it. I went from 
being pretty new to climbing on ice axes and climbing winter routes to trying to dry tool and your learning curve's pretty high. I think the problem in the UK is that unless you've got somewhere dedicated to plastic holes where you can kick in, it's really hard to train for it because you can't take your ice axes to the wall. And you do need to spend quite a lot of money on kit. And so you can't just use regular picks. You can use them, but it's better to use like this Russian steel picks and they cost like 100 euros per pick. And I kind of got a bit disillusioned, really. You know you're not going and competing well because you don't have a training venue. I was teaching. The second year I went out, I was teaching and it was my first year of teaching. And I got this horrific chest infection in November. And um, it didn't go until about April the following year. So I was just ill and ill and ill and ill and just went out there and did really badly and just got really annoyed with myself. Spend four hours in isolation at altitude with a tiny little petrol heater. Mm. And (laughs) yeah, four hours in isolation, having got up at 6am and you just feel sick all the time and, you know, you've slept in a room with a load of other people and, yeah, there's so many there's so many factors which are influencing how you perform. But everybody else has probably got exactly the same factors. So, And there was no point getting really annoyed with yourself because uh, there are conditions, aren't there? There are conditions on, on performance and if you're you're not meeting those conditions, then you're not going to perform well. Um, so I step back from competing you're you're free from competitions go do something else for a little bit go and find out a little bit more about yourself so I started head pointing instead (laughs) this is the point of our conversation which really intrigued me I'm going to play you a clip from later on out of context so that you can see why being able to stop yourself before you get carried away in emotion and before you get swept away in dark thoughts. Happiness is a spectrum and um, you can have happy moments when you're depressed, which like you could top out on a route or something like that. You've, you know, you've climbed something that you've always wanted to climb you can be happy but I know that I've climbed things when I've been depressed and just got to the top and immediately beaten myself up for not doing it quicker or not doing it well or you know that nut was probably a bit dodgy and so it's very bizarre the idea of happiness as a thing as an as a state I think for me um one of the things that I've personally had to do is become more comfortable within myself and more accepting of myself and learn skills to just coping mechanisms. You can't, again, the coaching that I've done recently, I've had um, two absolutely kick-ass women um, that I've been working with and they have both said, I don't want to be scared anymore, but you can't stop yourself being scared and I've climbed with amazing climbers world famous climbers and I've seen them get scared everybody gets scared but you can control your reaction to it and so it's learning to control the stuff that comes afterwards and being able to stop yourself before you get carried away in emotion and before you get swept away in dark thoughts so 
having a bit of a wise mind and having a bit of a reflective mind that is just watching and waiting and seeing and understanding as well as the being in the moment mind. Mm. Um, I guess I'm maybe asking a lot of myself to be able to switch in and out of things. Uh, yeah, I don't know where the head pointing came from. I think I just wrote myself a list. Uh, like I wrote a tick list in January and there was loads of routes on it that I'd always wanted to do. And then I started like actually going through them and being able to highlight them. But it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just climbs. There's quite a lot of fell runs as well, because I'd never really tried to fell run. So I'd always been a runner, but I'd never really tried to fell run. And so when I had the dog and stuff and she got a year old, I started going out and fell running and doing sort of increasingly long runs as well as going out and head pointing but my metier is is being out in the mountains I love being in the hills that is it's home so walking in through beautiful valleys to go and try something the whole experience of being out in this beautiful place and going and trying something adventurous and spending time with friends and that whole experience just means so much to me it I think it brings out it brings out the best in me, but that's a very, very, very sharp knife edge to bringing out the very worst as well. I guess from my experience, head pointing routes is pretty stressful. So I really wanted to know why you decide to step step away from one stressful arena into another one. After doing competition and doing so badly and being so ill, it was kind of like a oh, I can climb again. I can be fit again. I don't have to just like fall over in spasms of coughing every 10 moves. And then I did the first female ascent of Doors Rides a Shovelhead, which is actually really hard and really scary. And the history of the route means that it's... It it meant a lot to me to climb that route. You know, it's on the old Langdale Guide as like... uh, as Dave's route and it has a bolt in it um yeah if you speak to Dave about it he was annoyed at his uncle who'd done like some of the other routes so he drilled and placed this bolt but the bolt was like held in with PVA glue but it's like a massive shipping bolt but then it got chopped but you wouldn't want to put you could you kind of looks like you could put a wire over it you could thread a wire over it but yeah, it's held in with PVA glue, so I think a strong gust of wind would probably knock it out. And then uh, one time when we went to try it on a rope, uh, Ed and Sam Hamer were trying it, and they had managed to pull out a peg. There were two pegs behind this loose block, so you go up, um, go up through this groovy slab type thing and then go into another groove with some hard, dead pointy moves. Paul crimps and then you do a big move out to a jug and this jug is on this huge hanging block and there were two pegs there and Dave said that he put one in ding 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 sounded great put another one in ding 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 and then the whole block went dunk and so he never wanted to fall on those pegs because um, he was pretty sure that the block was going to come off and then it must be about 30 years since he climbed it so it's had a lot of rainwater and freezing and stuff behind that block now so he doesn't think it's all in that good a condition, but Sam and or Ed had pulled one of those pegs out and whether it was the good one that had gone or the bad one that had gone, we didn't know. So we put a cam in there, a small micro cam, but again, 
a small microcam behind a hollow block probably probably wasn't going to save you. So, yeah, it was just so exciting to top out. I, like, screamed at the top really loud, and I think I scared. The crag was really busy. It was May, but it was super cold, and there wasn't really anybody on the higher cliffs. And so there was a lot of friends who were working, a lot of friends from, like, Outward Bound and stuff who were working, and with clients and things and it felt really cool to top out it just felt really cool to top out one thing i really wanted to ask katie was about this idea of how as someone who struggles to have a positive image of themselves how do you reconcile that when you're head pointing something how are you going to get yourself into a positive mindset that you can do this when you're going to head point something that's going to be really hard and really dangerous I don't think you want to be in a positive mindset. You don't want to have any mindset. You don't want to be. I think when you're trying to fake positive mood, it's a really bad thing to do. And it takes quite a lot of energy to... I think if you think of a spectrum of like negative energy and positive energy, you want to be in the middle because it it's kind of no energy at that point. And you can concentrate entirely on what you're doing. And that's what you need. Brains are very stupid, aren't they? They can only do one thing at once. Um... So if you're focused on what you're doing, then you're not going to be fearing falling off or anything like that. And I think if you're trying to be really positive, are you going to be focused on what you're doing? Are you more likely to fail? I don't know. I know that whenever I've climbed well, my mind's been quite blank. To be honest with you, I wouldn't say that I'm positive or negative. I'd say I'm I'm neutral. You've got to have iron will. You've got to control every single emotion that's kind of bubbling around. I find that like the focus on what you're doing isn't like a memory you're trying to like remember which holds to hold and how and stuff but when I rode a lot and you did sort of dressage and stuff you don't want to think too far ahead because you'll make your horse do what you're doing further ahead and so you'll kind of do things in the wrong pattern so you you don't want to think oh I need to get that crimp that way and then put my foot up when you're a bit lower down you have to be thinking about how your hand's moving to the hold as it's moving to the hold. But that movement, it just has so much significance and it's so much weight. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've ever fallen asleep and you feel like your head's growing or you feel like the bed has changed shape and it's almost like that. Reality distorts. The only thing that exists is you in that moment and that particular moment, how your foot feels on that hold. It's so... you. Concentration is so great and it's so focused. Um, and that's why I don't think you've got to be in a positive mind frame. You've got to be willing to let go of everything else but that present time where you're and what you're doing and how you're doing it and how everything feels and being receptive to the feedback as well. I think it's that toss up between excitement and fear you know both of them are adrenaline based and so you've just got to try and channel your thoughts that I'm excited rather than I'm scared um I just love the buzz afterwards of getting to the top of something that you've you sort of you don't necessarily know you're going to get up and you know you're going to have to try really hard I tend to really go into the zone so everything goes quite quiet and just cl- I just climb really well when I'm head pointing. Um, I find it really exciting and I think I climb better 
head pointing on harder trad things than I would do on bolts because I've, I've, I've climbed the same French grade on trad as I have on bolts. But I think I probably climb better on trad because you can always come back again when you when you've got bolts. You just come back the next day or the, you know the next week or something like that. But can't really you can't really just decide to come off um, head pointing. You, you, bad things happen. I took a full. I went to try. Went to Recastle one day. Met up with a load of friends. And uh, a guy called Glenn Sutcliffe was trying a route there that's... It was EA, and I think it's been downgraded because if you have a certain piece of gear, it makes it a little bit more safe. I did not have that piece of gear. And he tried it on a rope, and then I was like, oh, I'll try it. Can I try it? And did surprisingly well at it. And I was like, right, I'm going to come back and try this route. And came back and was doing okay, but I think it was just a little bit of... I'm going to have, I'm going to do it last, last go. I'm going to pull the ropes, last go. Um, and I climbed up and I put the gear in on lead, which was uh, a cam and a shitty wire and then came back down. And the guy that I was climbing with had like tied himself in with like this. He basically made like a a nest, like a a rope and it was like a spider's web rope and he was a lot bigger than me and he was like bouncing on this gear and he was like, yeah, totally bomber, you can totally do this. And my skin was through and I was so tired and uh, the first hard... Mo- I think I maybe did... Oh God, my memory's so bad. I think I maybe did the first couple of hard moves but um, there was one move where you had to kind of bounce onto your foot and I had to... like really commit onto a poor foothold um to catch this next dish um and I just didn't do it I just didn't try hard enough and I think it was just fear of what will happen if I don't do it because that is the committing move and I went oh no and dropped back down again and then tried again and just went I'm off and came off and all of my gear just exploded out and I think I got hit in the head by cam and then I landed. A climb partner managed to catch me and I managed to land on all this nest of ropes. And I came, I've gone back and I've stood underneath that route and I came off from such a big height. No idea how I didn't break myself on, you know, kudos to my climbing partner for stopping me hitting the ground because... I should have done, really. I should have bounced off the ledge and, like, down the cliff a little bit and into the swamp at the bottom. And Yeah. I just thought it was really funny. How, how does taking that kind of risk feel to you? Is it... I've... Is the thought that you might take a fall like that exciting? Or... It is exciting. You know what? When I rode racehorses, that was a damn sight scarier, way scarier than anything I've ever done in climbing. Um because with a racehorse, you have an unknown, whereas with climbing and with winter... Cl- you know, winter climbing, things can break and things are melting and stuff like that, but everything I've ever done feels a lot more secure than riding racehorses. Riding racehorses was scary from the moment you got on them to the moment you got off. Um, and there was a few of us, there was a, a horseshoe. We'd get legged up in the yard and we'd be touching the horseshoe. And I'm not superstitious, but it was like, please please let me come back because they're all mental um 
and that was fun and that was exciting, but that was way, way scarier than than climbing hard trad. Yeah. Do you feel any responsibility to other people with that? So I see your parent now, but I also feel I'm not a parent, but I, I had an accident uh, about six years ago, and I feel like I'm aware that these things could happen, but now I'm I'm ultra aware that like oh I've sort of used up my go All um, right. on my goodwill from my parents <laughs> or something. I think, I think, no, because I just don't think if I fell off and hurt myself, I would be as ill as I'm ill when I'm depressed. And I can't, you know, I can't help being depressed. So when I'm ill and depressed and I'm really depressed, people love you anyway. So I just don't think, I just, yeah, it it doesn't cross my mind. Um, I've not gone back too hard head pointing since having Ada because she's not that old yet. And I definitely love to. She has two parents, so I don't think it is up to just me to suddenly not be myself anymore. It's who I am, and I imagine at some point, having seen my daughter, <laughs> little lunatic that she is, she'll she'll be taking risks in no time at all. She'll be doing something, whether it's downhill mountain biking or you know lion taming or something. She'll be doing something dangerous. You can just tell. That scares me about the idea of being a parent going, I know, I know what I did. I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. I know all the things I did that my parents never found out about. Yeah. I'd love her to climb. I'd, I, you know, I think with climbing and sort of going out when there's avalanche conditions and things like that, you understand the risk that you're taking and so you know how to minimise it and you understand you do have an instinct for when a risk is too much. There are days when you go out and you go, actually, the wind's kind of blowing the wrong way down the valley and I do feel tired and I'm going to climb classic VS today. I don't want to do anything more because it's not the time for it. Or, yeah, the the avalanche conditions are really great. I'm only going to do walk the edges or, you know, you, you, you manage those risks. I wouldn't want Ada to compete, actually. I wouldn't want Ada to compete because it is if she wanted to do it I'd let her do it but I definitely wouldn't be the pushy parent stood at the the sidelines going no we've come to this and I want you to do it if she wants to compete that's great but I'm not going to be the one taking her to bricks or anything like that recently the happiest I've been is when I've been Ada's learnt to walk and she's been walking for quite a long time but she's really good now and so we keep going to woods with the dogs or with the dog and then which is I mostly go places where there are deer and rabbits in the hope that she'll go and tire herself out by going hunting. The dog. Or the the dog, not the baby. Although I'd love Ada to tire herself out. She's 4am is a particularly good time for Ada to wake up. She loves it. And you just suddenly hear her, mummy. Then she has to show you her hedgehog or a bunny rabbit that she's slept with overnight. Um But yeah, I, I've been happiest when Ada's like wandering through the woods and she's like looking at different coloured leaves and like she's spotting things and I don't know it just feels like home being outdoors and I don't know just being in that moment it just feels perfect really and babies are perfect even when they get up really early and you're grumpy and groggy You have this discourse between expectation and reality and that's where 
your unhappiness lies. So you need to sort of reduce your expectations and bring up your reality, really. And that will mean you rub along quite happily. Um, and uh, I think some people's expectations are far more realistic. I've had huge amounts of help from friends and from the NHS. And so when you do actually manage to get some help from the NHS for mental health issues, what can be offered it can be outstanding. And you learn so much from it and it's nice. I've done some coaching recently and a lot of the coaching I've done has been skills that I've learned not just through climbing, but have I've learned through this period of being completely rock bottom. There wasn't anywhere lower than I could have gone this year. Um, and you really, you have to start learning things. So a lot of the time people would say, you've got to be kind to yourself. And I just couldn't do it. I just... I didn't see the point in it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what people meant by it. I just I couldn't couldn't be kind to myself. But then you start to see, well, kindness takes many forms. So it's it's a kindness to yourself to go out for a run. It is kind to do that. And it is kind to understand when you're tired and you just need to go to bed. It is kind to let yourself eat good food. And I think with climbers, you end up sort of stuck in this trap where I have to perform. In order to perform, I've got to meet all these conditions. You've got to weigh a certain amount. You've got to do a certain amount. You've got to... There's so many things. You're managing everything, every aspect of your life in order to maximise your performance. And then all of that's kind of gone out the window for now because actually it's, it is kind to yourself to kind of go you know what I'm gonna eat cake today because I want to eat cake and I'm gonna have a glass of wine because I want a glass of wine at the end of the day and nothing is being done to excess but just allowing yourself to live you don't need stuff to make you happy you need experience to make you happy it's quite an unusual thing for somebody to tell you like I grew up in a farming community and there isn't really I don't know nobody really talked about happiness or you know you, you go to university to do a job to earn money to get things to buy a house and then there was this other side of the coin which is why don't you just work in Morrison's and then go on an expedition for six months <laughs> and they were kind of encouraging you to do that which you know it's pretty cool really I guess I wonder at the end of this whether we're still talking in the same terms really Success is a thing. It's a thing that a lot of us are striving to achieve in whatever way we find self-validating. And maybe that's a problem. If you or someone you know is affected by some of the issues we've talked about today, please don't forget that there is help available. You can contact the Samaritans on 116 123. You can get a referral through your GP to NHS Mental Health Services. You can also look up self-help leaflets online at ntw.nhs.uk forward slash self-help. Thanks to Katie Forrester for taking part in this episode. Katie is sponsored by Eden Rock Climbing in Carlisle and Scarpa Footwear. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening.